You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We're going to be reading the psalm in its entirety, so Psalm 86, I'll just give you a moment to find your place. Okay, Psalm 86. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant, and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me. And comforted me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this sacred psalm, this sacred song. And Father, we thank you that you have recorded it for us and preserved it for us, that it could profit us here this morning, Father. And Lord, we come to you with full admission that, Father, if we are to profit from this psalm in any way, we are dependent upon you, O Father, to instruct us, to guide us, to open our minds and our hearts to receive that instruction. No, Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to teach us this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, O Father, and that, Father, you would lift our hearts, that, Father, we may hear that voice, that we may hear you speaking, that we may hear these words and find correction and, and find encouragement, O Father, in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Every believer, I think we would, would be a no-brainer to say that every believer should be a man or a woman or a child of prayer. I think, I hope we would all agree with that and say yes and an amen to that. But I think also those of us who have spent any time in prayer uh, would, would also say, you know, prayer can sometimes be quite difficult. 
And what I'm referring to is especially sometimes when, you, you know, sometimes it's just when you really desire to pray and you, you, you sit down wherever it is where you like to pray, wherever your, your, you know, prayer closet might be, and you bow your head and your mind is completely blank. Has anybody ever had that experience? Uh, and you might find it hard to believe that even somebody as Gabby as me actually has that experience from time to time. Uh, what in the world do we say? And sometimes our hearts and our minds are just blank. And there are other occasions where, you know, we find ourselves in situations that are so difficult that we don't even know how to pray for those situations. Have you ever had that experience as well? Where you, you and, and sometimes you might even just pray this way. You might say, Lord, I'm not even sure really how to begin uh, to pray for this. I, I really don't even know how to begin. Well, Psalm 84. Psalm 86 comes to our, uh, really to our rescue here uh, in, these, in these regards. It provides us with a tremendous amount of help by giving us a number of petitions uh, that we can use as a guide for our prayer in times of trouble. And as we're going to see here in a few minutes, it does more than just, gives a, it does more than just give us a few pet, uh, petitions that we can lift up before the Lord. Uh, it does far more than that. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to first explain some of the circumstances, as best as we can tell, that were behind David in writing this psalm. And um, I, I want to go from there to show how we can apply this psalm to our lives today. I, I think that's where we should start. And secondly, I want to explain an outline of sorts that's in this psalm that is so very helpful and uh, I want to identify uh, each of these petitions. This psalm can be identified by its petitions, and, or outlined rather by its petitions. And I want to identify each of these uh, petitions and then briefly explain and develop each one. So uh, with that having been said, let's begin with the circumstances. You'll notice the title, like if you look at the very beginning of the psalm above verse 1, it says a prayer of David, at least most of our translations say, should say something like that, a prayer of David. And incidentally, this is the only prayer that's ascribed to David in book three of the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the Psalter is divided into five books, and this is book number three. It's the only prayer that we have of David in Psalm or in book number three. And we don't know a whole lot about the exact circumstances that David finds himself in. We don't get any information about it really until verse 14. There is, a, um, there is an allusion toward it. In verse 7, David says, In the day of trouble or in the day of my trouble, I call upon you. We see that in, in verse 7. But it's not until, clear down until verse 14 where he begins to make any kind of uh, concrete comment about what the circumstances he finds himself are. And that shouldn't surprise us because a lot of times when we're praying, when we're praying about things that are really that that are really have us burdened, we, we usually don't explain all the details to God, do we? It's like we instinctively know God always knows all those details and, and He knows what's on our hearts and we know that and we just we bow our heads and away we go where we might not say anything about the ex actual circumstances other than the pain and that which it's causing. And that seems to be the case here with this psalm. Uh, David doesn't mention any concrete, anything concrete in terms of what the circumstances are until verse 14, where he says that insolent men have risen up against me. 
a band of ruthless men seeks my life. Uh, they're men who do not set you before them. And then in verse 17, he says that they are those who hate him. Uh, he says that they are those who hate him. Now, so what we have here is David has a group of ruthless, godless men. And if I might make some application right now, the word godless, a lot of times when we think of godless, we think of real bad guys. Uh, those are the ones who are godless. But you'll notice David says that the godless here are those who do not set, if you look back to verse 14 again, they are those who do not set God before them. So um, it isn't just the real bad guys who are godless. It's, it's anyone who doesn't have their life uh, orbiting around the Lord himself. Uh, we, we, really need, we really need to tell our culture that so much. Uh, our culture, so I mean, I know that, you know, folks don't want to hear that. And um, folks can find that offensive, but we so desperately need to tell people. We need to find ways to tell people that. We need to tell them that as nice as we can. But we need to tell people that, that godlessness isn't just committing felonies. That godlessness actually is when our lives do not revolve around the Lord, when they're not centered on the Lord. But back to David, these are ruthless men. They're godless men. They're men who are seeking um, they are seeking his life. They are men who hate him. So the situation that David finds himself in, we can easily say is a life-threatening situation. It's a life-threatening situation. Now, how do we use that? I mean, I think the reason I want to spend a few minutes on this is because I think we read this psalm and we kind of check out and we say, well, you know, if I had a bunch of ruthless, godless men who hated me and were seeking my life, then I could use this psalm. But I don't have like all these godless, ruthless men who are seeking my life. So what do I do with this? And besides that, David was a king with many enemies. And as any king has, I mean, there are people who lust for power. And any, any king is going to have his enemies. And they, you know, there are going to be people who covet his power and his position. And these men sought David's life. You know, David spent a lot of his life running from Saul, for example, for example. Um, who they were trying they were trying to kill him. So how do we apply that to us? I mean, is there any application to us in Psalm 86? And I want to I want to say I want to answer that with an emphatic yes. We can apply this. And let me give you a couple of reasons why that is. First, Jesus in John 15:8 says, "If the world hates you." Now he's speaking to his disciples. Now I I'm a little bit reluctant to say Christians because Christians are the word Christian is used so loosely today. A, a, a person could be called a Christian who's not even a disciple. It could be someone who's just merely, you know, merely just ascending to a few truths. We couldn't say that's a disciple, but in our culture, we might say that that person's a Christian. But Jesus is speaking to disciples, and in you know, I've I've been I've been doing these services. You you know, we're doing three a week now. I I'm mixing up what I've said where and when I've said it. Or, or if I've read it, or if I've written it down, or I've sent it to somebody, I'm at this point losing track of what I said and where I said it. But it wasn't long ago, I think it was in a Bible study, where I was pointing out that the word Christian doesn't really appear in the New Testament very many times. If I remember right, it appears like three times. Whereas the word disciple appears all the time. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he is saying, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
See, a person who's just merely mentally assenting to the truth isn't going to have anybody really persecuting them because they're not really representing any danger to Satan's kingdom. You know, and, and in many ways, they won't look any different in the world. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear a person like that say that they're a believer and you, you can almost scratch your head and say, well, man, why didn't I, why didn't I realize that already? Um, but if we're just mentally assenting to the truth, we're not going to experience this. That's why I'm making that distinction. Uh, these are disciples. These are people who are following Jesus. If we follow Jesus in this world, guess what? You will be persecuted. He's making it really clear. In fact, Jesus makes it so clear that he says, listen, count the cost before you come to follow me. And I think that a gospel, a minister of the gospel should, should say the same thing. Listen, you know, if you haven't quite made up your mind to follow Jesus, you need to understand that that message that says, listen, just hand your life over to Jesus and everything's going to be berries for you. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. I don't know how anyone who's ever followed Jesus could say such a thing. I, ultimately, ultimately, your future is going to be beyond description and beyond comprehension as you enter into glory with Christ. But while you follow him during this life across the grain of this world, you're going to be persecuted. You know, you might not get the, the job promotion that you've been wanting. There's a lot of things that you may not get. Uh, and Jesus is making that clear. He says that the world hates you. Know that it hated me before it hated the world. Now, why did the world hate Jesus? Because he proclaimed that its works were evil. And a lot of times people will not like the disciple, not because they've said anything, just because their lives and their testimony reminds them of this truth. And in our culture, in many cultures around the world, Becoming a believer, becoming a disciple of Jesus, it immediately puts you in a life-threatening situation. So in those cultures, Psalm 86 would directly apply. There, there will be people, ruthless, godless people, that will seek the life of the disciple. Our culture could get to that someday. Our culture is getting, persecution is around the corner. It is around the corner. And following Jesus is going to become more and more costly and um, I don't welcome any suffering, but in many ways, the church is going to be purified by that. We, 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 we'll be purified by that. But, but here's the thing. People will seek to ruin your reputation. So they might not be seeking your life, but they may be seeking to ruin your reputation. Or they may be seeking to derail you from your faith. So this psalm would apply. You can apply this psalm in those situations as well. And this morning as I was, as I was focusing on this, I thought of another application that I think, uh, really, what else wars against our faith? It's our flesh. Our actual flesh wars against our, fla our, our faith. So in many ways, our flesh is opposing the work that, the God, that God is doing in our hearts. You know that, what we call the old man that read, you know, you, you got this new principle in your life. If you're a Christian, you have a new principle in your life that's leading you and guiding you. But there's that old man that, or that old woman that is still saying, you know, still, still wanting to set you on the course of the world. And there you are battling with sin. Well, they're the flesh. We can pray Psalm 86 against the flesh. We can pray, pray it against uh, persecution. I would say that we could, if you look at verse 7, David is saying, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you. And I think there is a good, anything that would result in the day of trouble, 
you know, as we find ourselves in the midst of this coronavirus um, uh, crisis, we can we can pray Psalm 86. And as we look at these petitions, we're going to see that they, they apply. They really apply. Uh, so let, let me move on to the next point here. And that is this outline that I want to share with you. And let me say from the start, um, I, I got this outline from an old preacher named David Dixon. Sometimes he's referred to as just simply David Dick. Uh, David Dick or David Dixon, you'll see his last name uh, referenced uh, uh, either way. And he writes, he writes, the sum of Psalm 86 was a prayer for relief consisting of seven petitions, some of them more generally, some of them more particularly, expressing his trouble and his desire of relief. All which petitions have reasons joined to them, serving to strengthen the faith of the supplicant. End of quote. Now, I really share that with you largely um, to, to, I want to share with you where I got this. I mean, to preach this message and not give, give credit to, to Mr. Dixon to, would be plagiarism because so much of my message this morning is indebted to his insights. And what he is basically saying is that the psalm can be divided into these seven petitions. Now, in the course of my preparation, uh, I, I, you know, I tried to read as widely as time would permit, and I, 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 I saw a number of different outlines, but this one was one of the first ones I read. It stuck with me so much. It just almost as if the Lord just pressed this one upon my heart. And he says there are seven petitions. Okay, that's insightful enough, and that's easy enough to see. But what, what the brilliance of what Dixon is pointing out to us is that in each one of these petitions, David gives a reason after the petition that serves to strengthen his faith that he will receive the petition. Let me give you an example. Let me take you through all seven of them. Um, if you look at verse 1, David says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Okay, so his petition is, Lord, hear me. You know, we could write, hear us, or hear me as petition number one. But then notice, he uses the word for. For. Okay, for I am poor and needy. So David is lifting his petition up to the Lord. And then he says the word for. And then he offers this, 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 this other thing over here, which in very, it very much strengthens his faith that he will receive that petition. Let me give you another example. Here's number two. It's in verse two. The first four verses, one, two, three, and four. So in verse two, we have preserve my life. And then we have four, I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. So what is David asking for there? He's saying, preserve my life, for I am godly. That would be number two. Number three, be gracious to me, O Lord. See the word for? Most of our translations should have a for there. For to you do I cry all day. So that would be, be gracious to me. For to you do I cry all day. Number four, verse four, gladden the soul of your servant. See the word for? For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Uh, for to you, verse five, for, to, for you, O Lord, are good and, and forgiving 
abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And then the, the, um, the fifth one comes in verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Where again, okay, he's asking, he's, he's saying really the, in many ways the same thing as he said in, in the first petition. He's asking again for the audience, but then he gives a different reason after the four. The four comes in verse seven, for you answer me, for you answer me. So in rather than saying, for I am poor and needy, he is saying, for you answer me. So both petitions are the same. Hear me, O Lord, for I'm poor and needy. But the reasons after the petition are different. For I'm poor and needy, for you answer me. Now, petition number six is all the way down in verse 11. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then the four comes in verse 13. For great is your steadfast love towards me. For great is your steadfast love. So teach me your way. For great is your steadfast love. And then the last petition is in verse 16. Where he says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. So he's praying for strength. He's praying for strength. Turn to me, be gracious. Give me your strength. And then someone will say, well, where's the four in this one? Well, most of our translations probably have a because in verse 17. If you look at verse 17, it should say something like, show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because, okay, we don't have four, but behind this, we have the exact same Hebrew word that's been translated for. The Hebrew word key has been translated as for, but in this verse, we still have the Hebrew word key. If we were reading this in Hebrew, we would be seeing it's the same word, and it's translated because in verse 17. So um, show me a sign of your favor, um, if you will, or turn to me and be gracious to me, if you will. Show me a sign of your favor. Okay, so turn to me and be gracious. Show me a sign of your favor for or because you have helped me and comforted me. Does that make sense? You can see the outline. And I think once you see that outline, it's like, wow, Psalm 86 begins to just open up. Now, having given you, let me, let me just say a brief word about each of these petitions. Uh, because, we, I mean, that, that is a lot right there, but we, we, need, we, need to flesh these, we need to flesh these out. Let's go back to the first one where David says, incline your ear, O Lord. What is David doing? Literally, in the, in the Hebrew, he's saying, literally, stretch your ear, O Lord. And I think we can understand that. You know, if we come to the Lord and we say, you know, we're, we're in our prayer closet and our minds are blank. So we turn to Psalm 86 to get, our, to get some guidance on how we should pray. And here we see, incline your ear. We're asking the Lord to hear. Stretch your ear. We're asking the Lord for audience. But notice that David uses the word Lord with all of the letters capitalized. Capital O, or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And I point, you know why I'm pointing that to your attention. That's the covenant name, isn't it? And on Friday night, I was, I was showing that behind Psalm 23 is the covenant of grace. And I want to show you that David is very much, very much, he's appealing to the covenant name. The covenant name is the name Yahweh. One of the names that God reveals himself as. He reveals himself 
as Yahweh to Moses at the burning bush. But we often call it the covenant name because if you go to Genesis 15, where God uh, cuts a covenant with, with uh, Abraham, the, the, the name Yahweh appears in that passage. So a lot of times we call this the covenant name, the covenant name. So what is David doing? He's asking for audience and he's appealing to the covenant name, if you will. And then notice what he says. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, what does he mean by being poor and needy? Uh, I think it's helpful for us to turn. Keep your place in Psalm 86 and just turn back to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 just makes this so clear as to what he means by poor and needy. Psalm 37 is also written by David. And if you look at verse 14, in verse 14, Psalm 37, verse 14. Notice he says, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down what? To bring down who? The poor and needy. Now, what we have in this, in this verse here is a contrast. The wicked are being contrasted with the poor and needy. And we also have a parallelism in the next line. Uh, to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. So poor and needy and upright are in parallel with each other. So what David has here is he has the wicked and those whose way is upright, or the poor and needy, if you will. And in this verse, really, the Bible only speaks about two different groups of people. There are those who believe and those who don't believe. There are the sheep and the goats. Um, that's the only two groups of people that the Bible recognizes. There are no third. There is no third. So the 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 wicked are here being contrasted with the poor and needy. So as we seek to answer the question, who are the poor and needy? Well, they are they are they are the, the Lord's the Lord's people. They are those who have received uh, faith from the Lord. Um, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he became the poor and the needy. So we could say that it's the godly who have put their trust in the Lord. So David calls on the Lord using his covenant name, which reminds David of the Lord's unbreakable covenant promises. We're going to see more of this here in a few minutes. But let me say one more comment about poor and needy. Poor and needy are also those who have cast off self-reliance. They've cast off self-reliance. You know, David calls as one who has cast off all self-reliance and self-sufficiency. So he is poor and needy in terms of his own strength and resources. He's poor and needy in terms of his own strength and resources, which is amazing. I mean, David was a man who fought and killed a lion. Um, that, I mean, that is breathtaking. Yet he is casting off self-reliance. He is casting off self-sufficiency. He is poor and needy. So how do we apply this? Well, we ask the Lord to hear us. We ask the Lord to hear us, and we can know He hears us. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you can know He hears us because of His covenant promises, which are ratified by Christ's blood. You know, when I serve the Lord's Supper, many of you are used to hearing me say this, and I say this every time. 
when, you know, when I hold up the cup, I say, this is the cup, and I'm, I'm repeating Jesus' words. He says, this is the cup of the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of grace. This is the cup of the covenant, which is poured out in my blood. What is Jesus saying there? He is saying that this covenant has been ratified in my blood. In other words, it's been ratified by my shed blood upon the cross. Now, what does this do for us when we're praying? Well, Jesus, is, Jesus says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. But by his bloodshed on the cross and by his resurrection, we see that he has truly opened a way. So David, looking to the covenant, he says, Lord, hear me. But in his time of need, how can he know the Lord is hearing him? Because of the covenant promise, which has been ratified. Now, David looked forward to the covenant promise being ratified, but we look back. We have even more reasons to know that God hears us because we can look back to the cross and we can see that Jesus has truly opened up a way for us to be heard. Can we know we have audience with the Lord? We can know that we have audience with the Lord with such certainty as the bloodshed of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. So we put it all together. We can ask the Lord to hear us, asking though, as those who are poor and needy with the confidence of the cross that he hears us. Does that make sense? So you see how much the four does for us. Oh Lord, hear me. Hear me as I cry to you. How do I know you're hearing me? You're the covenant God. You've made a covenant promise with us and you've ratified this covenant in the blood of Christ. And as sure as the, as sure as the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know you hear me. And that you see what that does for our confidence that God hears us. It's, it's absolutely tremendous. Number, number two, preserve my life. Uh, verse number two, second petition, preserve my life. The word preserve, shamar, it means to keep, guard, protect. Keep, guard, protect. David is calling on the Lord. He's calling on him to preserve him, to keep him, to guard him, to protect him. And then he says, for I am godly. For I am godly. Now, what, what is David saying there? Well, the word kasid, which is translated godly, can mean holy, pious, faithful, godly. Now, the King James translation, if any of you have a King James open, it says, for I am holy. I am holy. Now, is David, is David being self-righteous here? Is he saying, oh, look at me. I am holy. I am wonderful. No, we know better than that. We know better than that. David, again, is appealing to the covenant. Now, I can show you, if you look at it really closely, it's easy just to go right past this and miss this. But he says, preserve my life, for I am godly. You save your servant who trusts in you. But then look what he says. He says, you are my God. You are my God. That is a reference to the covenant. Listen to Leviticus 26, 12, which you hear me quote a lot, where God says, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. David is saying, you're my God. I am covenant with you. Of course, David is in covenant with the Lord. The Lord made a covenant with David. Part of the covenant of grace is made with David, namely with a son who will sit on his throne forever, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who is the king of Israel and king of the universe. So, what, when, so let, let me just ask you this question. When was the last time you reviewed the covenant promises when you were praying? It's probably something maybe some of us have never done. And I'll even confess that a lot of times, I, I, there's been many times that the covenant has not even been even on my mind as I've prayed. 
But here, look what we're seeing. Preserve my life, for you are my God. For you are my God. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Why? Because you've brought me into this marvelous covenant. And you have said, listen, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going I'm to make my dwelling with you. I'm going to make you my, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. So in that hour of trouble, in that hour of need, we can call on the Lord to preserve us. And if we're, if we're questioning in any way, we look to the covenant. Lord, you have promised to be our God. You are my God. And we take hold of that. And you can see how that strengthens you. Let me, after, let me, let me, let me just add a couple more things to that. I think just make this so beautiful and wonderful. Think about Jesus. When Saul is persecuting the church, you know, Saul of Tarsus, He's persecuting the church. He's got his letters. He's headed to Damascus, you know, and he's going there to jail or even kill Christians, disciples of Jesus. And on the road, on the way there, Jesus blinds him with his glory and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, I mean, who had probably memorized the entire Old Testament, doesn't even know who's speaking. He's like, who are you, Lord? But my point is, Jesus so closely identifies with his people that to persecute one of his people is the same as persecuting him. So he can say, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And then in another, in another case where, you know, uh, in case of, I mean, when we give to someone who's in need, when we give to, when we give to a brother or sister in the faith uh, something that they need, when we come to their, when we come, when we provide necessities to anyone in the church, Jesus says, In Matthew 25, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. Jesus so identifies with us, his people, that our needs are his needs. You see, they're his needs. Now, of course, God is in need of nothing. God doesn't doesn't need anything. Um, he, he He needs nothing. But he so closely identifies and relates with us as to feel our needs. So, you know, be gracious or uh, preserve my life, uh, for you are my God. Uh, the third one, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Um, this is a prayer for mercy. I mean, grace is undeserved, and it's a prayer for mercy. But notice what, notice what David says after. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for you, to you do I cry all the day. For to you do I cry all the day. Now, what, what is going on here? We can think about Jesus' parable. The reason I chose it for our New Testament reading this morning is because of that parable where there's this, this widow and she goes to this unjust judge and she's pleading for justice and he's ignoring her and he's ignoring her and he's ignoring her, but she will not quit. She will not quit. And finally, the judge says, the only way I'm going to get her off my back is if I give her what she wants. And Jesus argues from lesser to greater. He says, listen, just as you see this widow arguing with this unjust judge and she finally gets what she wants, also come to God. If an unjust judge is going to give this widow what she wants, how much more will your fathers in heaven give you what you look for? And here's, here's the answer. Here's, here's the thing. What Jesus is saying basically is he's saying, listen, do not give up in prayer. Do not give up in prayer. And here David instinctively, without the parable of Jesus, knows this. He is saying, be gracious to me, Lord. Why? What, what is strengthening what is strengthening David in this, that he, that he, that he could appeal to, to God to be gracious? It's because he won't give up with him. He won't give up with him. You know, there's been many times where I've counseled people, you know, they, they still haven't crossed over the threshold from belief, from unbelief to belief. And I say to them, listen, 
take a hold of the Lord and don't let go of him until he blesses you. You know, but we are so quick. I mean, we pray one time and we think fireworks are going to go off. But no, here's the thing. David, David knows that God will be gracious to him because he will not give up. He will not give up. And this is how we're to pray. We're to pray for God to be gracious to us. And our lead is from David, don't give up. But our persistence takes hold of Jesus' promise and it strengthens our faith. We can, we can think of Luke 18, where that parable comes from, and that can strengthen us. You know, all of us have prayed for loved ones that they've come to faith. And maybe they haven't come to faith yet, but let's not give up. You see, we say, Lord, be gracious. We can say, Lord, be gracious to our loved ones. Be gracious to our loved ones. And we can get very discouraged when we don't see that happening. But then we think in our minds, I cry to you all the time about this, Lord. I cry to you all the time about this. And we have Luke 18, which serves to strengthen us in this. Does that make sense? I so wish I could see all of your faces right now, because then I would know if you're with me. But at any rate, let's move on. Verse 4. That is number 4. It says, Gladden the soul of your servant. And here he is. Here's a prayer for comfort. Here's a prayer for comfort. He says, Gladden your soul. And I love this. You'll hear me say this in, in prayer a lot, where I just love that. You know, gladden our hearts is what I usually say. It's a habit, and I love it. I don't want to break. It's a, a lot of our habits we're trying to break, but I, wanna, I don't want to break this habit. I love this habit. Gladden our hearts, O Lord. You know, the King James, I love it too. It, it, it translates the word samak. It translates the word rejoice and says, rejoice the soul of thy servant. How does that sound? Rejoice the soul. When you're really hard pressed and burdened with something, something even in David's case is life threatening or something that really is significant, really annoying at your soul. And you say, oh, Lord, rejoice my soul for I am for I am thy server. Rejoice the soul of thy servant. I'm sorry. Or gladden the soul of your servant. That is but that is petition number four, which really is saying, comfort us, comfort us, comfort me, O Lord. And notice what David says. He says, for to you do I lift up my soul, for you are a good and for you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. So what is David saying? He's saying, well, Lord, gladden my soul, rejoice my soul. For you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. In other words, David is trusting in nothing else but the Lord. But he goes on for this. Notice his reason for the hope is in the character of God, which he states in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, you know, David's saying, comfort me, for Lord, you're good, and you're forgiving, and you're abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You know, what, what is David doing? He, see, this is where experiential knowledge is so important. See, David knows the Lord experientially. He knows what God is like. He knows him personally. And he knows that God is a good God, who is a forgiving God, who abounds in steadfast love to all who call upon him. And this serves to strengthen him as he calls for the Lord to gladden his heart and to rejoice his heart. Can't you feel that warm in your heart as you think about that? What is our God like? Our God is forgiving. Our God is forgiving. Our God is good. He is ever more willing to forgive us than we are to repent. 
I mean, he is ever more willing to forgive us than we are to come forward with our stuff. He is good and he is willing to, for, he is willing to forgive. And of course, verse 5 is shorthand for Exodus 34, verse 6. You can write that verse down. Uh, we're going to see it again. We're going to see the whole thing almost verbatim here in, uh, in just a few minutes. But David Dixon, he writes, I, I love what he writes here. He says, the knowledge of God's goodness and mercy is the life of faith and the fountain of consolation and the ground of prayer. You know, if we, if we think, if we're, our lives are prayerless, it's a very good chance that we don't understand this fact right here. Because as we begin to understand this fact, that's when, we, that's when, you know, that's when we're like, wow, I can really come to you, Lord, and you are really good. You are so good. All verse 5. Memorize verse 5. Oh, Lord, here's what God is like. He's good. He's forgiving. He's abounding in steadfast love to all call upon you. Oh, oh yeah, even me? Yes, even you. Yes, even you. That's just what he's like. He, he would have to deny himself to not be this way. This is just what he's like. Don't, for, don't forget the fact that he's a righteous judge. But he is good and he is forgiving. And this is the day of salvation. This is a day to come clean with your sin and ask for his forgiveness. So under the burden of hardship, we call on the Lord for comfort. And we strengthen our hope in receiving that comfort by reaffirming our trust and looking to God's goodness and willingness to forgive us and his abounding steadfast love that's expressed in these verses. Does that make sense? Oh, how that, that should be right, right about now. You should be wanting to say, Rick, could you pause for a minute while I pray? Because these petitions are wonderful, you know, and, and I, I think there's some of us who would probably rather I not do that. So let's just keep going. And you can pray all afternoon uh, with these things. And if you want my outline, I'll send it to you. And you can put your outline in front of me. Just send me a text and I'll, I'll, send, you off a, I'll send you all these things. You know, if you can make sense of it, knock yourself out. I, I think you'll be able to. But petition number five, we must get moving. Petition number five is in verse six. Where, where, where David says, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. And we might say, well, you know, that's, that's repetition. That's repetition of the first. Yeah, it's, he's, he's asking for the Lord to hear him. He's asking for the Lord to hear him. Uh, hear me, answer me. Uh, meaning, deliver me. Give me relief from this burden that I have at the moment. Give me relief. But, but what's interesting is David is now putting forth a fresh appeal to strengthen him in his hope. And that comes in verse 7. For he says, you answer me for you answer me. And let's, let's resolve this right now. Let's resolve this right now. God is a God who answers prayer. You can take that to the bank. God is a God who answers the prayers of his covenant children. If you're in covenant with God, he answers your prayers. That's, you can take that to the bank. There may be times where he withdraws his answers. There may be times when he's disciplining us where he might withdraw and might go silent with us, but he still answers us and he still will eventually answer us. Sometimes he delays the answer. Sometimes the answer is not the answer that we would hope for or we would want, but resolve it in your mind right now. He always answers. He always answers. Look at it right there for you answer me. David is confident. Lord, you know, hear me. And, and, and give me relief right now in my hour of burden. That's the petition. Give me, you know, give me relief or give me deliverance for you answer me. I, he, he's going to do it. He is going to do it. And David's hope for relief is strengthened also by God's sovereignty. If you look at verse 8, he says, For there's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
nor are there any works like yours. Then he goes on to say, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In the ancient world, the nations each had their gods. And it was believed that, okay, Egypt has their gods and the Philistines have their gods and the Canaanites have their gods and Israel has their gods. And when they go to battle, the greatest god is the one who won the battle. But here, uh, David, David is saying, listen, Yahweh, you are truly God and only you are God. And you're not just God over, over various nations. You're God over the entire world. Yahweh has created all nations. And what is amazing is Yahweh or the Lord is going to bring all nations all nations are going to come and worship before the Lord. All nations. We know that every human being will bow their knees to the Lordship of God. Now, that'll be believer and unbeliever alike will bow their knees. But God is also collecting His people, and He has people from every nation, from every nation all around this world. So the Lord, here David is saying, listen, you are gathering. You are gathering people. You are gathering the nations. Now, what is David's point? Verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Now, what is David doing? David is praying for relief and his hope is strengthened in the fact that God will answer him and that God is willing to answer him. He's willing to answer him because he always answers prayer for his children, but he's able to answer him because he is sovereign over the whole entire world, over all nations. So we have his willingness and we have his ability, which strengthens David. Petition number six. This is an interesting one. Petition number six is one we want to pay real close attention to. Notice verse 11. Petition six is in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This is the verse that drew me to Psalm 86 a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And I thought this would be a good psalm for us as we're going through this time. And it was really, it was unite my heart to fear your name was the actual phrase. I wrote it in my prayer journal and I started meditating upon it. What a, tre what a tremendous, uh, tremendous, tremendous verse. Here, here's the thing. Temptate, whenever we find ourselves in hardship, when we find ourselves in the day of trouble, temptations are very dangerous in that day. Why are they so dangerous in that day? Because we're not as objective as we normally would be. And, uh, you know, and this is why David is saying, listen, he's in, he's, he, you know, here he is in this storm. These people are seeking his life. And David says, listen, teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your paths. What, what is David saying? In darkness, we can't see. But what David is saying is he's calling on the Lord for his leading. When you're in a time of trial like this, you're asking yourself, what do I do? And you're calling on the Lord, what do I do? Do I make decision A or decision B or decision C? What course am I to take? How am I to navigate through this? And what, what the psalmist is saying, listen, teach me your way. This is an important petition. It's one we probably don't maybe lift, but we're in great danger when we go through trials. We're in danger of making the wrong decision. We're in danger of actually leaning on something other than God. Idolatry is intensified in these times where we might choose to lean on somebody else or something else instead of the Lord. As we ask ourselves this question, how we're to get through this? And our hearts are given to division. Notice he says, unite my heart to fear your name. I read that the other day 
just in the course of my own personal devotions. It was at night. I read Psalms at night before I retire for the day. And I I come across verse 11, and that unite my heart to fear your name. The very first word that I thought of was the word singularity. I thought of singularity. You see, this is what we need to be on about. We need to be on about singularity. What do I mean by singularity? Our hearts need to be devoted to God. Our hearts need to be devoted to Him. Everything else in life will fall out as we, as we are singularly, singularly devoted to the Lord. But our hearts are often so given to division. They're so given to other things. And, and, and that is the problem. Notice that in verse 12, David says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. See, with my whole heart. That is a singular heart. It's with all my heart. And what does, what does the law command of us? To worship the Lord or to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not with half of it, not with 25% of it, not with 10% of it, not even with 90% of it, but with 100% of it. And that is singularity. It is the singularity. And notice that David says, I will glorify your name. I will glorify your name. He doesn't say, I will glorify my name for too much of the time. And there are personalities. Some of our personalities are more given to this than others. But too much of the time we labor for the glorification of our own name and reputation instead of the glorification of the Lord's name. And that, you know, that is, I, you know, that is one of the biggest... When we talk about a divided heart, there is a divided heart. What percentage are we on about glorifying the Lord's name? When people wrong us, we get all bent out of tune and bent out of shape when someone wrongs us. And a lot of times it's because of our pride that we do that. It's because our name has been soiled in the dirt. But yet we can listen to God's name be put in the dirt all the time and hardly be in comparison, even be affected by it. Um, That is a divided heart. That is a radically divided heart. And that's what we've got to push against. And that's what, that's what David is saying. Listen, unite my heart. Unite my heart because it's full of vanity. Unite my heart because it's divided. It'll often, it'll often do the, the wrong things. And then he gives a great, if you look in verse 13, this is a great antidote for a vain heart. He says, for great is your steadfast love towards me, for you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Now, Sheol is the grave. And what is David saying here? He is saying, listen, you have saved me. You have saved me from Sheol. You know, vanity is the enemy of prayer. Vanity is full of self-righteousness, self-reliance, self-assurance. And David's praying against vanity by looking at his deliverance from Sheol, from the grave. Now, meditation upon the cross, meditation upon the cross, it's also for us as we move into the as we move into the New Testament, as we move into our own dispensation, you know, in our own time. How do we make application of verse thirteen? Let's meditate on the cross for a minute. You know, if we're if we're discovering vanity in our hearts and we're discovering this in our hearts, we're seeking for our glory, or we're seeking for our children's glory, or me as a pastor, I'm seeking for my own pastoral um, uh, reputation. Okay, when we discover anything like that that's going on in our hearts. Let's look to the cross. You want to see our greatness? Look to the cross. You want to see our self-righteousness? Look to the cross. You want to see our self-reliance? Look to the cross. The cross reveals what we truly are by revealing the measures that it took to save us. We didn't just need a little bit of help. 
Jesus had to hang in agony upon the cross in order to redeem the very best of us, the most humble of us. So you see, our redemption required Jesus' agony. And when we walk in pride and self-reliance, we prove that we don't understand that, or at least we've taken our eyes off of that. Listen, let me put it this way. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, and I know I know, majority of you are, if you're a believer, if not all of you are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus has saved you from hell. He has saved you from hell. And as one author puts it, as one author puts it, this ministry of deliverance should be looked at us the same way as if we had went to hell and God had went into hell after us and pulled and jerked us out of hell. Now there, there, oh, if, if you, if listen, if you believe that, if you believe that, you're not going to stop praising God. You're not going to be able to stop praising God if you really believe that. If you believe that, you're not going to be praising yourself. You're going to be praising God. That's what you're going to be on about. And you're going to be leading, you're not going to be leading your children to praise. I'm, if I'm praising myself, I'm going to be leading you to praise, uh, praise yourselves or praise me worse than that. If, if we're on about praising God, we're going to lead everyone around us, our children, everyone around us to praise God, not to praise themselves. And we're going to be singing verse 12. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Do you see how all that works? What a wonderful, the sixth petition teaches us. In the sixth petition, we ask the Lord to teach us his ways and unite our hearts so that we would have singularity. And the reason for it is he has delivered us. And if you're in Christ Jesus, your, your reason for this is he has delivered you from hell. We got one more, strength and vindication. This one is actually very interesting as well. If you look at verse 16, he says, Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Now, what is he saying? Well, he's, he's saying... He's saying, give me strength. But he's also saying, vindicate your gospel. Now, some of us say, what? I didn't see gospel in there. I didn't see vindicate your gospel in there. Well, it's in there. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength. So he's asking for strength. Give me your strength. Now, I think that comes to our mind readily enough, and we pray for strength. Okay? He says, give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. But this is something I don't know that we think about. Verse 17, show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because, and that's the four here, if you will, key, Hebrew word key, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Now, what is David saying? At the surface of it, it looks like David is being vindictive and he's calling, he wants the Lord to shame his enemies. And ultimately, that is what's going to happen if they don't repent. But what David's really on about here is, Lord, give me strength and show me a sign so that everybody watching can see that it is indeed true that you are my God and you have delivered me. Now, why would David want, why would David want that to happen? So that his enemies could see that they're wrong, that it is in, indeed profitable to Give your heart to Christ Jesus, to give your heart to the Lord. And then they might in turn repent. 
that they might in return repent. So David, by saying, show me a sign in verse 17 of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me, is praying for really the, the covenant of grace to be vindicated. The covenant of grace is the gospel. He's praying for the gospel. Vindicate your gospel. And as the gospel is shown to be sure and true, his enemies may see it and they may repent. So let me review all these with you real quick and I'll close. Verse number one, hear me for I'm poor and needy. Verse number two, preserve me for I am godly. Verse number three, be gracious to me for I will not give up. Verse number four, gladden my heart for I trust in you and you are good and forgiving. And then hear me, that's in verse six. Verse six, hear me for you answer me which means you're willing to hear, you're willing and you're able, God's sovereignty. And then teach me your way, verse 11. Teach me your way, unite my heart, for great is your redeeming love toward me. Teach me your way, unite my heart, for great is your redeeming love toward me. And then lastly, verse 16. Teach me your strength and vindicate your gospel, verse 17, because you have helped me. Because you have helped me. Prayerlessness is at best a sign of spiritual decay and more commonly an evidence of an unbelieving heart. So if, we, if we're examining ourselves and we say, you know, I'm largely prayerless. And if we only pray when we're in a jam, we would qualify as being prayerless. Um, prayerlessness is a sign of spiritual decay and it's more commonly a sign of evidence of an unbelieving heart. Now, you know, as a spiritual doctor, I want to just tell you, these are the symptoms. You know, the symptoms of an unbelieving heart or a heart that's in deep spiritual decline is prayerlessness. You know, it's prayerlessness. Our salvation is, you know, not the only thing that Jesus accomplishes on the cross. On the cross, Jesus opens up a way so that we can have audience and we can have this relationship with the Lord. And to not take him up on it is really a sin. It really is. Prayerlessness is indeed a sin. Christ wants every believer to be a man or woman of prayer. But prayer is not always easy, is it? It's not always easy, and many times we come to God with minds and hearts that are blank, and we don't know what to say or how to say it. Psalm 86 provides us with help in this, doesn't it? Providing us with these seven powerful, prayerful petitions to guide our hearts in the hour of trouble and following each one with this biblical truth that strengthens us. So, you know, God answers prayer, and let's think about it for a moment. Let's look at it negatively. How many, how many blessings have we forfeited in prayerlessness in our lives? But let's look at it positively. How, and I like to end on a positive note. How many blessings await us as we take these petitions and we put them to use in our prayer life? How many blessings await us? How many great blessings await us? How many great deliverances await us as we take these things and we enjoy, take them before the Lord and pray? We see we got great reasons here for praying. So may the Lord give us diligence and incentive to take these petitions, use them for our comfort and for His glory. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I so thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, for the attention that you've given us, Father, uh, in this message. I can't see everyone, Father. I don't know if this has been too much for them or not, Father. And Lord, I just pray that, Father, you allow folks to be able to get what they can, Father. I never want to be a host that doesn't serve enough food, Father. And Lord, I pray that everyone will get something out of this, oh Father. Apply it to their hearts. Apply it to their minds, oh Father. You know, in normal worship, I can see when people are getting fatigued and tired. Here I cannot see, O oh Lord, but you can see the heart. And Father, 
apply these things to everyone's heart and life. That, Father, work in our hearts and lives. That, Father, we, we would be in... We would have great incentive and excitement to come and pray and great excitement and incentive, oh Father, to take up prayer and to begin learning these petitions and begin to digest all of these, all of these things that bolster us, oh Father. There's a lot of work and it takes, it takes a long time. It's going to take us a long time to put this into practice. But oh Father, staple it to our hearts that this work can begin even now for your glory and Father, for our comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.